I'm thankful for so many things when it comes to God's design for his church and all that he's given us to enable and assist us in our walks with him. Today, I'm especially grateful for the signs and the symbols that he gives us in his word that we might have a visual and tangible aid in our worship and our focus on him. Uh, as we begin this special season, which offers us so much, uh, I'm thrilled with today's message. I'm thrilled that today's message is bookended by what rests on this table before you. For centuries, Christians have been gathering together on brisk mornings like this, just as winter begins to come in, lighting candles and celebrating communion, both of which are gifts from God's word that help to flesh out our faith and make it more personal. While the words of mere men like myself don't often do justice, the grace and the love of our God, I hope that these pictures and these symbols by the power of the Holy Spirit can do wonders for our souls. And I'm confident that if we'll embrace what they mean, they absolutely will. This candle burns for every one of you today. This candle burns for everybody who's ever thought about giving up, who has ever questioned the use of pressing on on any given day. And, and let's be honest that no, nobody's gonna judge you here. And, and, and if we ever wanna get the help that God wants to give us, we've gotta be open about it. We've gotta talk to God about it because he already knows. Let's be honest, we've all thought about giving up before. No areas of our lives, personally, relationally, professionally, spiritually, there's no area of our life that has been off limits to this temptation. The enemy prowls around us, trying to get us to give up and give in. If I may pry a bit, Christians and churches are full of people who have been trained by religion and by some warped version of Christianity to suppress these feelings and these thoughts that they struggle with. There are so many sitting in sanctuaries like this today who as they sing and read and pray and give, in the back of their minds, they're tossing these sorts of questions around. What is my purpose? Should I even press on? Should I give up? Should I give in? This candle burns to remind you, no, to rescue you today. These candles will burn for the next four weeks to send a light to our darkness in hopes to open our eyes to the message from God. If you're thinking about giving up, if you're thinking about quitting in any area of your life, on a small scale or on a large scale, of course, if you're wondering if there's any reason to hold on or press on, this candle this light shines for you so that you might begin to believe. Again, if there's any area in your life where you've given up, you've lost faith, or maybe in general you've lost faith in what God has promised and what God can do for you and through you, this light burns for you. If you've given up on your chances to change or overcome some nagging part of your life, if you've given up on correcting some bad habit or overcoming some shame you've bore for too long, if you've grown weary fighting for your family, for your marriage, for your relationship with your parents, your children, or siblings, or somebody that you wish you could mend that bridge with, if you wonder if you are ever going to get your big break, that you get that program, that school, that job, that passion that you are so longing to, to find and fulfill you, if you've ever felt like there's a rift between you and God, and you doubt that you could ever have the hope, the peace, and joy, and love in your heart that this season is all about and you even much less you wonder if you could ever bring those to the world around you this candle burns for you there is an enemy let me warn you 
And most of you already know. There is an enemy, there's a voice from the enemy that haunts us and taunts us day after day. He tries his best to convince us that we should give up, causing many of us to say those despondent words, what's the use? But may this candle and may every light that burns so bright this Christmas season, may it remind you all, may it remind us all that salvation has come. If you have your Bibles open to Jeremiah 33, I want you to look at just a few verses with me to kind of get us started this morning. Jeremiah 33, verse 14 through 16. This is Jeremiah speaking into Israel at its darkest time, at its most despondent, at its most uh, desperate. Jeremiah speaks into the hearts of the people of Judah after uh, particularly suffering a devastating defeat after one bad king after another. And Jeremiah rises up after being rejected and being told to never speak again for the Lord and speak to the people um, on behalf of the Lord. Jeremiah doesn't stop because he has something so important to share with the people. Jeremiah chapter 33, verse 14, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord that I will perform that good thing which I have promised to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. In those days, and at that time, I will cause to grow up to David a branch of righteousness. He shall execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell safely. And this is the name by which we shall cut, that, which she will be called the Lord our righteousness. This candle can be lit today and this word can be read today in confidence because God has kept his promise to us. The day that Jeremiah speaks of did come wherein God did fulfill his promise to Israel and to the whole world. The branch has sprung up. Justice and righteousness has come. Salvation has come. And therefore, here's the best part for us. We can come to God. Hebrews 4.16, this verse is made possible by, the, by this season. Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find help in the time of need. Because of this season, we can know God and we can belong to God. Do you hear that? We can belong to him. We can be his. We may feel like we belong to something or we are owned by our problems, our failures, and our sins, and our shame, but Christmas reminds us and Advent reminds us that what was once in the way between you and God has been taken out, has been removed. Over the next few weeks, we'll gather and worship to celebrate this good news that is exclusively found in the Christmas season. Because of the arrival of of our Savior, the Savior of the whole world. And his name is Jesus. We call this season Advent. Advent means arrival. Advent is a season to wire our hearts to trust in Christ's coming to, for our salvation. It's a season where we believe and we wire our hearts to the truth that because Christ has come and is coming again, our hope is firm in him. If people wonder, where is your hope? And you may have your hope scattered across all, all sorts of things. You may have a little bit of hope in this and in them and in that and in those. But Advent is the season that says, no, no, no. There is one hope and there is one Savior. Wire your heart in in his coming, his first and his next. 
Just as he finally appeared to a world wearied and exhausted by sin from waiting years and years, our arrival at Christmas in a few weeks confirms to us that God has fulfilled his promise through Jeremiah. And we can expect him to answer and satisfy our greatest needs and our heart's greatest cry. So not only is it a season of hope, but it's a season of confidence. Advent is a season wherein we learn to wait patiently and expectantly on the Lord. Because the original promise of Christmas was given generations before it ever came. It was a season of waiting and we step into this season and we wait for Christmas to finally get here and we learn what it was like for the early, for the ancients to wait and we too wait for him to come again. Just as he first came, we know that he is with us and will visit us in our every need. And beyond that, he will return again to our world to fully and finally restore all things. So Advent serves two purposes for us, really. Number one, it draws out our burdens and struggles. It invites us to come to God with our burdens and struggles and bring them to him. If you're overwhelmed by something, God says, bring it to me. And it invites you to put all of your hope in Jesus, knowing that he will visit you and he will deliver you. If you have hope in anything or anyone else but Jesus today, God invites you, bring the burden, bring the struggle and cast it onto his son because only he will visit you in the midst of your struggle and only he will deliver you from it. You know, sometimes we're wrestling with life and we're questioning everything. And the only thing that that can cause us to keep going is a little bit of hope that relief might be coming soon. But many times we found ourselves in a situation where we don't know how much longer we can wait. Have you ever been there? Where you've waited and waited and waited and you know, you keep thinking, you know, I'm gonna wait a little longer, but I don't know how much longer I can wait. And if we're being honest, we know that giving up or giving in isn't gonna make our situation any better. We know that. Of course, it's not gonna make things any better, but there's part of us that just doesn't care anymore. Our will becomes so frustrated and so tired and worn out that we lack the strength to persist. Even though we know it's not going to do us any good to go somewhere else or to turn to somebody else, we just get tired. And our emotions and our mentality just get so worn thin, we just don't really know what to do and we just choose to give up. In those cases, in those cases, our hearts and our minds are constantly juggling the looming shadow of dread whatever it is that is overwhelming you and looming over you, our hearts are always juggling the looming shadow of something dreadful and the speck of hope that may remain. But some of us, you know, we live at this place where the dread is large, but the, the hope, the speck of hope is getting smaller and smaller and dimmer and dimmer and dimmer. And maybe you're living there right now in some situation, some area of your life. When it comes to what you deal with personally about any given motivation and ambition to improve your life, maybe the dread of the thing that's just unavoidable for you, it's getting bigger and bigger and heavier and heavier, and you've lost the idea that there's any hope for you to change and to improve and to get out of the mess that you maybe feel like you're stuck in. Maybe the, the thing that you're dealing with at home and your relationships and your family, you know, you, the, the, the big, the, the, the dreadful thing just doesn't seem to go away and it gets worse and worse and it's wearing you thinner and thinner and you just are giving up. Maybe when it comes to moving to, from that one would-be opportunity to another and you, you think maybe this is going to be the day and the next phone call or the next email, the next text is going to be the answer that I'm waiting for or the good news that I'm waiting for. Maybe you're tired of believing again, again and again, day after day, that something's gonna change. 
maybe when it comes to your walk with God, your faithfulness, your obedience, your growth in him, you, you've been trying to, to get better and get closer and, and people say they can, you can do it and everybody else is doing it, but you just don't feel like it's really a possibility for you. So many of us, we live at this place where the only thing that keeps us going is the potential for hope, the promise of help. Yet all the while, the pressure of life builds and builds. And it, it, don't we live here? That we're, we're kept alive, we're kept you know, hopeful by the potential and the promise, yet even though we've got the potential and the promise, the pressure is building and building and building. And sometimes you just think, I don't know if the pressure is gonna continue to hold off, even though there's potential, yeah, there's promises, yeah, but the pressure is just a lot. And we know something's gotta give, don't we? And may I just be honest with you, if something doesn't give in our flesh, in my flesh, you and I, we, none of us have the strength to live like that forever. None of us do. And here's why Advent is the perfect season for us to open up about our struggles because Advent puts a calendar right in front of us and says December 25th is right around the corner. The day you've been waiting for is right there and Advent doesn't hide the wait. I mean, yeah, it's not here yet but it highlights our hope. Yes, Advent says there's a little bit of time between you and the answer, but the good news is there is an answer. There is hope. You know, Advent's kind of a microcosm of the life, of the, of the reality that we live in all the time. It highlights that weight, but it also highlights and exclaims the hope. You, you see, this manufactured season of worship and devotion helps us understand, yes, our struggles are real. Yes, the waiting game is hard, but it reminds us that we are not without hope, that help is on the way. Every Advent, we look back to the world before Jesus came. Before, because if, if there's ever been a more despondent world, and I know, I know, the world is a, is, is a broken place. We live in it, I live in it, we watch the news, sometimes we turn it off because it's so messed up. The world is broken. It's bad, I know out there, but I don't think it's ever been as bad as it was before there was a Savior that had entered the world. I mean, we talk about how bad it is now. Could you imagine living in a world where you did not know that Jesus came and rose again and is seated at the throne of God? So maybe next time we think about how awful, and of course it's bad, we need him to come back and restore all things, but we live in a world after he has come and brought salvation. There was a world before that did not know what we know. They didn't have the Bible that we have. Didn't have the ability to do what we do right now to find this comfort in our hearts. And when we look back, we find ourselves in their struggle and in their sin and in their sorrows as they were waiting on God to come through for them. It's easy to see ourselves in their struggles, in their sin, and in their sorrows. We see ourselves in the stories of old so that we might secure ourselves in the same Savior which came for them. Because the luxury of reading the old is we can turn the page and we can see that he did come. When we turn to any given story in the Old Testament, we're pretty much reading that first line of, of, the, of the verse of a holy night that goes, long lay the world in sin and error pining. Pining is a word that means regressing, getting worse and worse, deteriorating by the minute. Long lay the world from Genesis 3 all the way uh, until the, in the book of Malachi, but that thousand, two thousand plus year period, the world lay in sin and error, regressing, worsening every day. 
The nation of Israel was meant to be a light to the world, but they too fell victim to sins grinding away at all that was good and pure. The artificial things of religion weren't enough to overcome this for them even. And if you opened up any Old Testament stories of Israel, we find them deeply suffering the effects of a sinful and fallen world. This suffocation caused by many, uh, caused many of God's people to walk away from him to just give up. And that's the world that Jeremiah was preaching to, a world that had given up. Many of our go-to Christmas prophecies were given during a time when Judah was wondering if they should continue to put faith in God, wondering if it was worth it to be faithful, doubting that there was redemption coming for them, if there was any reason for everything that was going on for the good or for hope. One, of, one particular season of Israel's history that stands out is a time when the people of Israel, on practically every level, from the throne to the, uh, to, to the peasants uh, in the streets, everybody, every demographic, every status, everybody in this nation were on the brink of giving up. Practically everyone uh, wondered if it was worth it. In addition to the prophet Jeremiah, God rose up a prophet called Isaiah to bring them a message of hope and a promise of salvation. Whereas Jeremiah's prophecies are pretty general, Isaiah gets very specific. And he takes this promise of a branch of David and he brings it to a whole other level. And Isaiah is most famous for pretty much introducing us to all of the, 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 the well-known and the well-often-quoted Christmas prophecies. But they're recorded 800 years or so before Christmas ever came, which is pretty remarkable. Isaiah essentially puts Christmas on the calendar, but he doesn't give it a date. He doesn't give it a window of arrival. He gives it no estimated time of arrival. Isaiah says it's coming, but I don't know when, and you don't know when, and nobody knows when, but the only thing we've got is that it is coming. He begins revealing the promise of Messiah. He invites people to put, uh, bring to God other worries, their fears, their frustrations, their questions, and to trust in him. Isaiah and Jeremiah had an audience um, of, of people who were back and forth from do we put faith in God or do we put faith in any number of other options that the world has given us. Isaiah, in his early years, brought the word to just one person, though, before he later would address the whole nation alongside Jeremiah. God sent Isaiah first to the king of Judah named Ahaz, who ruled the, uh, in the land of Israel in the 700 B.C. Ahaz, from the throne, was sending all the wrong signals to the people of Judah, and the nation was becoming hopeless under his leadership. And let me kind of explain what was going on in those days. The people of Judah were on the brink of giving up while King Ahaz was on the verge of selling out. And here's the kind of the situation the world was in in those days. This is a map of the ancient world. Doesn't mean much to us. Just It's just a big blob of land with a bunch of green on it. But that is the Middle East that you can see a picture of clear in the back of your Bibles. All that green is the jurisdiction of one, the Assyrian Empire, A-S-S-Y-R-I-A. Assyria was the evil, ruthless empire of the day. They were much more vile than Rome ever thought about being. They invented crucifixion, but they didn't hang people. They impaled people, if that doesn't sound even worse. The Assyrian people were monsters and they conquered ruthlessly murdering everyone in their way. They didn't spare almost anybody and they humiliated anybody who was the king of the nation that they conquered. They left behind them a trail of ruin and corpses. Meanwhile, in a very small corner of the world, Assyria had yet to conquer 
We'll zoom in. And this is a land that we're familiar with, the land of Israel, the land of Judah. This, this was a time in Israel's history where the nation was divided. The t- 10 tribes were up north in the nation of Israel. Two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, were down south in the nation called Judah. Meanwhile, around them was the nation of Syria. So don't confuse that with Assyria. Syria was a little nation that was trying to fend off the ensuing invasion of Assyria. So Syria and its king comes to Israel and they make a deal. We're going to team up and we're going to form a blockade and we're going to make sure that Israel, that, that Assyria can get through us and we're going to fight back. And they come to Judah, the little nation down south that had, that had the most money and had the stronger warriors. They come to Judah and they try to convince Ahaz and Judah to join their alliance. Meanwhile, in Judah's case, the little nations below them, Philistia and Edom, see this as an opportunity to advance their own causes before the Assyrian takeover, and they begin evading the the southern borders. So when you talk about Judah, the little place in yellow, Judah is surrounded by conflict and has hardly any good decision that, that they can make. They feel like they don't. They are surrounded by pressure from Edom and Philistia. They are being pressured by Syria and Israel. And meanwhile, looming over the horizon is the empire of Assyria, and they are chomping up every territory they get near. So the people of God begin to wonder, is this what it's like to be blessed and highly favored? Is this the most wonderful state of living? I'd hate to see the worst if this is what it means to be chosen by God. Over time, temple faithfulness begins to erode. Faithfulness to the law falls off hard. The people begin to question everything they could live for. Meanwhile, King Ahaz finds himself in a very, very difficult spot. As the leader of the nation of Judah, do you join forces with Syria and Israel? And do the dumbest thing possible, trying to fend off the biggest, most ruthless army that the world's ever known? Or, or, as he began to talk to his closest advisors, do you do something different and unexpected? Should King Ahaz get his chariot together in entourage, and should he make a trip to Nineveh, bow before the emperor of Assyria, inform them of what Syria and Israel are trying to do and pledge his allegiance to Assyria in hopes to save the nation from destruction. King Ahaz began to, began to consider and begin to believe that that was the best option to save the nation. After all, Ahaz was the, was the descendant of David. It was his right, it was his obligation to try to protect Judah for the long run. And as this began to trickle out to the nation, the people began to panic. Because, yes, they wanted the nation to survive, but they knew it wouldn't work this way. If King Ahaz goes to Assyria and bows before the the emperor, then Assyria is going to come in and ban worship to the Jewish God, shut down the temple, rebrand it to worship the Assyrian gods, and people that believe in the Jewish God would be killed for their allegiance. So the people of, of Israel, or people of Judah begin to panic because they did not see this as a good thing. But Ahaz believed this was the only choice he had. And over time, even the most staunch, devoted Jews began to agree, Ahaz, we think this is what we need to do. We hate to do it, but there's no way we survive this if we don't do this. And 
Isaiah comes to King Ahaz. He calls for him to meet him on a hillside one day, and Ahaz is just devastated, and Isaiah confronts him, and he says, listen, listen, buddy, you can't do this. You cannot, number one, you're worried about Syria and Israel. They're, 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 they're just wasting your time. They can't fight Assyria. You can't join them. And don't worry, God's not going to let them attack you. Oh, by the way, you cannot go to the Assyrian Empire and bow before the emperor. You know that betrays everything you stand for. I know you want to give up. I know you want to give in. I know you don't feel like there's a better option. But you have got to, but trust me on this, God is faithful. But you've got to bring this before God and trust in him. You've got to surrender this to God because dealing with this in yourself, it's just going to make you choose the bad option. And Isaiah tells Ahaz, if you're not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. That if your faith in God is weakened, you will be weak all over and in every area of your life. And man, isn't this true? If our faith crumbles, we crumble in every area of our life. Morally, politically, financially, all of our values begin to erode because when we take God out of the center, we lose our sense and our compass, don't we? Isaiah begs Ahaz, please do not do this. And Ahaz flippantly says, I've seen all I need to see of God. He has, not let, he has let me down. He has not been faithful. I am not going to turn to your God, Isaiah. I am going to do what I think I got, have got to do as the king of my people. In the middle of this conversation, Isaiah, it's so amazing, he begins to prophesy about things that I don't think Ahaz knew what he was talking about, and I don't even know if Isaiah knew what he was talking about, but God begins to reveal through Isaiah that there is a plan for the nation of Judah, that Ahaz is worried that if I don't do this, there's no seed of David, there's no lineage, there's no kingdom, there's no dynasty, there's no Messiah one day. And Isaiah brings a word to the people of Israel as they begin to wonder if the royal lineage was in trouble, if the throne of David was in trouble. Ahaz thought, hey, this is what I've got to do to secure it. But as the people begin to wonder if they were ever going to have a good king, if they were ever going to have, uh, have the promise of Messiah come, and clearly Ahaz's plan wasn't the way God intended it to be, the people begin to wonder, how are we going to get through this? And Isaiah brings him a word that is pretty powerful. He tells him that God's promises are never in jeopardy, but we are when we lose faith in them. This is Isaiah's word again and again. God's promises are never in jeopardy. I know it doesn't look like things are secure. I know things look a little bit haywire, but God's promises will never fail. But you will and we will as hard as that is to hear, we will fail and we are in jeopardy if we lose faith in him. Ahaz thought, what if the king's household is destroyed? What hope is there for the nation? What branch will sprout for David's lineage? And Isaiah says, hey, don't worry. The Lord himself will give you a sign. A virgin will conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Listen, Ahaz, if you think you're that important to God's plan, let me tell you, God's going to bring a savior into the world and he doesn't need man's help. And it'll still be through the house and lineage of David, just not the way you expect. God does not need your help, Ahaz, but he does need your trust. The Messiah would come out of and into a mess. He would be the master of messes, not making them, but redeeming them. Ahaz, quit defining yourself by what you see, hear, and fear, and how you feel, and trust in God. 
Isaiah puts the promise of Christmas out in front of Ahaz. And as the conversation continues, Isaiah says this in chapter 9. For to us, a child will be born. To us, a son is and will be given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of the peace, there will be no end. Ahaz, I know you feel like you're a pretty big deal. And you think you've got to do all this to secure you and save you. But God is not worried about an end. There's no end in sight for God. But there is for you. If you don't turn all of your worries and all of your fears and all of your questions over to him. Ahaz had a chance to put his faith in God. He had a chance to anchor his kingdom in the coming kingdom. And we do too. The light of Advent and Christmas shines into our darkness every year, confronting our fears, frustrations, sin, sorrow, and shame. And as we consider giving up, as we consider giving in, as we wonder if the speck of hope is enough to overcome and overwhelm the shadow of dread and doom, God's promise to us this Advent, this, Christ, this season, that Christmas is coming. His promise that is that Messiah is coming. Salvation is coming. While Ahaz is trying to decide what he's going to do, Syria gets impatient and invades Judah and leaves them pretty wounded, killing many of their soldiers. Ahaz finally goes through with it. He makes the long journey to Assyria's capital, falls in front of the emperor, and pledges everything to him. Let's see how that story goes. So Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, came against Ahaz and afflicted him, what's the words? Instead of strengthening him. For Ahaz took a portion from the house of the Lord and the house of the king of the princes and gave tribute to the king of Assyria, but it did not help him. But he promised it would. It did not. In the time of his distress, he became yet more faithless to the Lord, this same king Ahaz. For he sacrificed to the gods of Damascus that he defeated, that defeated him, that had defeated him, and said, because the gods of the kings of Syria helped them, I will sacrifice to them that they may help me. But they were the ruin of him and of all of Israel. After this, Assyria destroys Damascus, destroys Samaria, leaving nothing left of Syria and Israel. Ahaz dies and has put Judah in a very tough spot. The whole nation trembles at what might happen next. But that's when Isaiah the prophet steps up to address the whole nation. And if you've got your Bibles bookmarked, we'll close with a read from Isaiah 40. As Isaiah finds a nation left in the balance of Ahaz's foolish decision, this is God's word to the people on the brink of giving up. Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem. Cry out to her that her warfare is ended. Her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand a double portion for her sins. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted. Every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places made straight. The rough places smooth. The glory of God shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. 
The voice said, cry out. And he said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all of its loveliness like the flower of the field. The grass withers the flower fades, but the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Oh, Zion, you who bring good tidings, get up to the mountain, the high mountain of Jerusalem. You who bring good tidings, lift up your voice with strength, lift it up and be not afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, behold, your God or behold, your God has come near. There's a story of a father who was raising his daughter on his own, was on the verge of giving up despite being witnessed to and reminded again and again that he had a God that loved him, he threw his hands up and wanted to end it all. People told him, God is with you, God will come through. But one night he sat down at the table in the kitchen and wrote down on a sheet of paper and bowed his head and wondered what would happen next, wondered if he had the strength to go forward. He wrote on the paper, that God is nowhere. He's nowhere. He said despondent and broken, his daughter came into the room and picked up the paper beside her father. And not exactly sure what was going on, she picked the paper up and began to alert her dad with excitement and wonder. And she said, Daddy, Daddy, have you seen the paper? It says God is now here. She read it off to him, not realizing what he had wrote. He lifted his head up. He looked into her eyes and he realized that in his despondency, in his devastation, God had visited him in the most unexpected of ways. You see, that's what Advent is all about. It's where our feelings and fears that God is nowhere are met with the promise and the hope that God is now here. Look down at verses 27 through 32 as we close. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my just calm is passed over by my God? Have you not known, have you not heard the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak and to those who have no might. He increases their strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary and the young men shall utterly fail. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Those who hope in the Lord in the middle of their devastation, in the middle of their struggle, when they feel like God is nowhere, they lift their eyes up and they see the light breaking through the darkness because that's what Christmas reminds us. It may feel and seem dark around and within, but the light of Christmas has come. Unto us, not just a child or a son, but a king, an everlasting father, a mighty God, a savior has come. Unto us, God with us, and this table before us. Yet another tangible reminder of how God is with us. He came to be with us 
as one of us, he saw us in our sin, in our shame, in our sorrows, and he embraced us. And not only did he embrace us, but he embraced them. He took our sin, he took our shame, he took our sorrows, all of us, and suffered under their weight that we might be saved by him. This table of bread and the fruit of the vine reminds us that indeed God is now here. He's in the light, he's in the bread, he's in the cup. His spirit is with us wherever we are, whatever we go through, God is now here, God is with us always. That's why we celebrate Advent. Because as we wait for Christmas to come, we don't wait alone. God is with us. Let me pray for you. For visiting us in our wake. Lord, if there's anybody in the house today that they're going through something and they're waiting and they're wearied and they're worried, Lord, would you bring them to a place of surrender to you? What better way to show that surrender than publicly coming before the church and saying to everybody around them, I need your prayers, I need your support, I need your warmth, I need your love because I am seeking the God who the Bible tells me is with me and that the Spirit of God has brought me to this place of surrender. Lord, if there's anybody in the house today, would you bring them to that place of surrender where they trade their worries and their fears and their frustrations for the God who visits them and delivers them, for the God who is with them always. Lord, would you prepare our hearts for this Lord's Supper as we take part from your table? Would you prepare us to receive the gifts, to receive the Spirit's gift to us today that we might draw near to you as you've drawn near to us? We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.